Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Lord, we just sung those words, but help us to, to, to really let them sink in. Lord, we pray that as we hear you speak now, as your word is preached, that you would fulfill in us broken sinners. Fulfill in us your glorious purposes. And we know, Lord, that will only happen through the work and agency of your Son and the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may have come across the BBC TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? It's, it's a favourite of mine. Now, in it, famous celebrities go on the show in order to chase their family trees to discover something of their identity. It's funny, all of them go on the, sh- on the show hoping to hit the genealogical jackpot. They want to be like Matthew Pinsent, who's the Olympic gold medalist rower. He went on the show and discovered that he is a direct descendant of Henry VIII. And all these celebrities are going on the show hoping that something else might be uncovered like that. But more often than not, it's funny, more often than not, in, instead of discovering the glorious, normally they uncover garbage. Jeremy Clarkson for example, of Top Gear. He learned his ancestors were all labourers from a very small Yorkshire village called Tickhill. And for century after century, it seems his ancestors did nothing but intermarry with each other in this tiny village. Clarkson said, I'm amazed I I don't only have one eye and gills. Now, we all have pasts, don't we? But I wonder, to what extent do we allow our pasts to define who we are? In the privacy of your own mind, who do you think you are? Some of us, we we latch onto the glorious bits of our pasts, don't we? We we stake much of our identity on who we're related to. Or perhaps the great and glorious things we've achieved across our careers. Some of us latch onto the glorious. Many of us, though, we really struggle to shake the burden of our pasts. We feel unable to, to let go the memory of shameful things we did when we were young. We forever perhaps feel under the shadow of the people who hurt us. Or abused us. Perhaps we're angry at God for having dealt us such a bad hand in life. Who do you think you are? Well, today I want to encourage us to lift our eyes off ourselves and off our own histories and onto the history of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see, his past is full of glory. But much like many of us, his past is also littered with garbage. Now, I don't know what you make of genealogical passages like this. Um, As Ben was reading it, you're perhaps thinking, oh no, really, this passage? Um, They they, they don't really command much of of our attention, do they? At worst, we we might skip over a passage like this in our quiet time. Let's begin in verse 18. At best, we might use them to hunt for baby names. So if any of you are expecting... I think Aminadab is underused. Aminadab. I'm going to pitch that to Hannah should we expect our third child. Aminadab Palmer. has a good ring to it, doesn't it? 
But Matthew begins his gospel in, in this way to show his predominantly Jewish audience that Jesus really is the long-promised king they've been looking for. That after century after century of heartbreak and disappointment, their Messiah has finally come. Just look down at me at verse 1. I want to show you something. Verse 1. His gospel begins like this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, Ab- son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, fortunately, it's not very clear in our translations. David, at the back, could you just let in the UPS man? Our flyers have arrived. Thank you. We're expecting him at some point. I'm glad it's come at this point so you're not horrendously distracted at the key moment. This isn't the key moment. So look again at verse 1. Unfortunately, our English translations aren't very clear here. Matthew's words in the original deliberately mimic the style and language of the very first book of the Bible. So here in this opening phrase, he's promising us a new book of Genesis. A new beginning for those of us who follow this long-promised king. So friends, here is great news for those of us who struggle to shake off the shadows of our past. Here is good news for those of us who are wrestling with heartbreak and disappointment. In Jesus, Matthew says, you're being given a new start, a new genesis, a new beginning. Now, I want to persuade you of this. So we're going to spend our time today working our way through this genealogy. We won't be picking on every name. That will take forever. We'll just be picking a few highlights or lowlights. And at the end of it will draw a few implications for us. So forgive me if we sort of dump the the application right at the very end. You have to stay there uh, with me for it. But before we get underway, we we need to kind of get clear what Matthew is not trying to achieve in this genealogy. You've got to know that like like most genealogies in the Bible, um, Matthew hasn't put literally every single person in. Uh, He had to be highly selective. So the phrase, the father of, which is repeated ad nauseam throughout this passage... It can also mean the, the descendant of. So it's a Matthew would have left out a number of generations. Um, but also, Matthew's aim is not to follow the biological line of Jesus. That's what Luke does in, in his gospel when he begins with Adam. No, no, Matthew's aim is to pick up on the royal line of succession, which is subtly different. If you know anything about English history, um, you'll know that our kings and queens aren't always the firstborn. Often there's some strange things going on. And so Matthew follows that royal line rather than the biological line. So it's subtly different to Luke's. And you'll notice in this, the way Matthew structured it, at the very end of verse 17 there, he's got three sets of 14 names, three sets of 14, three different blocks of history which he wants to take us through to show us this royal dynasty of David. Well, with that, with that out of the way, you'll see from a handout there what the first block of 14 names is all about. Here we see the kingdom promised. So look with me at verse 2 in your Bibles. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now it's not surprising, isn't it? Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, where do you begin? You've got to start with Abraham, haven't you? Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. 
And uh, he's the one, I'm sure you know, remember from Sunday school, he's the one to whom God made that threefold promise. I'm going to make you into a great people. I'm going to give you a great place. And through you, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Great promise. But the problem was that his wife, Sarah, was now too old to have any kids. So God's amazing promise. To Abraham, it seemed like a little bit of a sick joke. For many years, Abraham couldn't believe it, which is why he ended up having sex with his slave girl in order to try and have some children with her, because he didn't believe it would happen through Sarah. In fact, on another occasion, he tried to offer up his wife, Sarah, to a foreign king to have sex with her just to save his own neck. And he didn't do that once. He did that twice. Abraham was a deeply flawed man. And yet God's promises remained. In fact, amazingly, God keeps adding to the promises. Not only would Abraham be given a people, a place, and blessing, kings would come from his line. So in verse 2, we saw that, how we move from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and his 12 sons, but particularly the royal line of Judah. Judah. Now, if we had time, we could tell the story of nearly every single man mentioned in this list, and we would see something of their glory. But friends, we would also smell their garbage. By and large, all these men were utter scoundrels. They were cheaters, liars, misogynists, polygamists. I could go on. The Bible doesn't make any effort to cover up their sin. It's there. It's in the open. You can read it for yourself in the book of Genesis. And yet, God's promises remain. I think the most interesting thing about this first block of names is not so much the men, but the women which are added by Matthew. Most Jewish genealogies don't, don't add women, but Matthew highlights them. Did you see that? So in verse 3, we're reminded of the story of Tamar. Now, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, but when her husband died, Judah failed to take care of her. He was the patriarch figure, and he failed in his duty there. So Tamar became a prostitute. And uh, one day, Judah was walking along the road, and he saw a beautiful woman by the side of the road. Her face was covered, so he, he had sex with her. And by way of payment... He gave her some of his personal items, and he went on his way. That woman was Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and because of that roadside encounter, she fell pregnant. Later, Judah learned that his daughter-in-law had become a prostitute, and as you can imagine, in that day and in that culture, he was outraged. He said, we should burn her alive, and then she pulls out his personal items, which he made payment of, and his shame is there for everyone to see. And because of that child, the royal line continued. Friends, this is a messed up story. But we see God using the garbage of human suffering and evil to bring about his glorious kingdom purposes. The same point is made there in verse 5. Did you see that? Where Matthew reminds us of the story of another woman, a woman called Rahab. When the people of Israel, they're now a massive nation, 
when they were entering the land promised to Abraham, Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who lived in the city walls of Jericho. And you might know the story. Spies went into Jericho to to suss it out a bit. And uh, the spies stopped by her establishment. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. And yet she trusted in the God of Israel. And she asked to be protected when the city fell. And when the city fell, she got adopted into God's people. And we're told here she married a man called Salmon. He was a bit of a fishy character. Sorry, I couldn't, couldn't resist. And together, Salmon and Rahab the prostitute had Boaz. Verse 5, we mentioned another woman. Did you see her? Ruth. Again, she was a despised Moabite, one of the enemies of Israel. But just like Rahab, one way or another, I can't tell you the whole story, she got adopted into God's people. She married Boaz. Together they had Jesse. And we're told in verse 6, Jesse was the father of King David. Now, I hope you see on that very quick tour that Matthew isn't trying to cover up the skeletons in Israel's closet. In fact, quite the opposite. He's getting out a highlighter pen and underlining some of the very worst bits because he needs us to see that God's glorious kingdom purposes are being worked out through the garbage of human suffering and evil. Well, in the second block of 14 names, Matthew wants us to remember how the kingdom was not only promised, but how it was lost. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. King David, of course he kicks it off there in verse 6. He's he's one of the most glorious figures in the whole of the Old Testament. Through him, it seemed as if God's promises to Abraham were going to be fulfilled. Remember those threefold promises? David, through David, it seems as if the 12 tribes of Israel were becoming a vast, vast people. Uh, Through David, he secured the land to be a vast place. And through David, it seems as if international blessing was finally coming about. All of Abraham's promises, yes, they're happening through David, a glorious figure. And you might recall when God takes David and he swears to him an oath. That's why we had Psalm 132 read earlier on. It's all about that promise God made to David. He said, but through you, there will always be a king on this throne. A king, a a dynasty, which would last forever and ever. But then it goes wrong, doesn't it? Notice again verse 6. David was the father of Solomon. And what do we know about him? Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, it's springtime. And Israel's army are away fighting a battle somewhere. But strangely, King David, the great warrior king, he isn't with them. Instead of being with his troops, he's back in Jerusalem, chillaxing. So one evening, he's there, he's walking along the rooftops. And he looks down, and on one of the lower roofs, he sees a beautiful woman bathing naked. As most of us do, we tend to bathe naked, don't we? And he, he sends one of his servants. He says, who, who's, that? who's that woman? She's stunning. And, and the servant says, oh yeah, that, that's, that's Bathsheba, wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
But the fact that she's married doesn't deter David. He sends for her straight away and sleeps with her. We're not told whether that was with her permission or whether she was forced. We don't know. I can't imagine she had much choice in saying no to the king. But just like Tamar before her, Bathsheba falls pregnant. And just like Judah before him, David tries to cover it up. At first, he tries to get Uriah, the husband, to return home to have sex with his wife in order to sort of cover up the pregnancy. But Uriah's having none of it. He's too loyal to his troops. It's not fair that I should go home and they shouldn't. So David arranges for Uriah to be put on the very front line of the battle, in the fiercest possible place. And there he's killed. From then on, David's kingdom starts to fall apart. Bathsheba's son Solomon becomes king. And like his father, he does glorious things, glorious things. He builds the temple where God would dwell. But just like his father, there's a lot of garbage. In his pride, he amasses great wealth. He amasses great number of weapons. And he marries a great number of women. Most of them foreigners, worshipping other gods, and they turn his heart to their gods. Because of this sin, God tells Solomon that his kingdom will fall. And sure enough, his son Rehoboam, who we read about there in verse 7, does precisely that. Civil war erupts a generation after the climax of the kingdom. And the north and the south are torn in two. Israel and Judah split. And they never properly recover. The rest of the, the block of names in this section, they're all told about us in, in the books of 1 and 2 Kings. It's just one big downward spiral of disappointment. None of them match up in any way, shape or form to David in his prime. A succession of prophets go to these kings, calling them to repent, calling them to restore Israel. And by and large, they all reject these prophets. And the prophets say, look, if you keep disobeying God, you're going to be sent away from this land, much like Adam and Eve were sent away from the Garden of Eden. You're going to be exiled. But by and large, the kings ignore these warnings. And so this block of history comes to a sorry end there in verse 11. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, invades Judah and besieges Jerusalem. The temple Solomon built is torn to the ground. And all of the nobility are carted off into exile to Babylon. Many of them were made eunuchs, that is, their testicles were cut off, so that there's no more possibility of any more kings of Judah. And so at this point, God's promises to Abraham and to David, well, they look like they're on the rocks, don't they? Well, this leads us to the third and final block of history, the kingdom hope. We discover in verse 12 that remarkably a royal line survived the exile. It seems King Nebuchadnezzar didn't manage to put the scissors to all of them. And the Davidic dynasty somehow, somehow stumbles on. We don't know much about many of these names. We do know a little bit about one of them, a guy called Zerubbabel. He's there in verse 13. Zerubbabel, again, an underused name if you're thinking of children. Zerubbabel. Uh, Zerubbabel was one of the guys who returned from exile to build, to rebuild the temple. And as one of the last surviving line of David, a huge amount of hope 
was placed in him. If you go later and read the prophet Zechariah, he, he, he prophesies and anticipates that Zerubbabel would, would not only restore the temple, but from him, from Zerubbabel, would come a king who would bring about international peace and justice. Now at that point in time, Zechariah's prophecy was very, very hard to believe indeed. At that point, God's promises to Abraham and David, they, they looked to be in tatters. The people of Judah were decimated by the exile. They, they rebuilt the temple, but it was pathetic, uh, pathetic compared to Solomon's one. And rather than being a blessing to the nations, Judah was still under foreign rule. And at that point, God says to Zerubbabel, do not despise the day of small things, not by strength, nor by power, but by my spirit. The rest of the book of Zechariah waxes lyrical about all the amazing things that this future Davidic king would do. He's going to unite the divided kingdoms of north and south and bring them together as this vast people. This king is going to restore the city and the temple to surpass its original glory. This king would bring blessing to flow out of Zion forevermore. But none of it happens. The Old Testament ends. And for 300 years, God's people receive not a single word of prophecy. They remain under the rule of a variety of foreign rulers, first the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans, which means that the royal line of David falls not only into obscurity, but complete unimportance. After verse 13, we don't know anything about any of these names. Until we stumble across a bloke called Joseph, who was a carpenter. So much for the royal line. But pick it up with me at verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. I hope you see Matthew's point here. That Jesus really is the long-promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament, through Abraham, through David, and everyone else. And yet, this promised king was born in the midst of scandal. To an unmarried teenage girl called Mary. We're going to follow her story in, in more detail next week, so come back then but having met Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba Mary's inclusion in this family tree is no longer a surprise is it well as I close let me draw together a few implications for us reasons why this is absolutely relevant for us here today Firstly, you'll see from your handouts, Matthew is, an encourage, is encouraging us to know God's promises. A few years ago, I came across a couple of artists called Tim Noble and Sue Webster. They're sculptors, but instead of using metal or stone, as sculptors want to do, they sculpt using rubbish, household rubbish. 
One of their pieces, I, I wish we had a, a screen so, so I could show it to you, it was just a bunch of beer cans stacked on, on, on top of a wall. And it seems as if someone's been shooting them with a gun because they're riddled with, with bullet holes. It's not very impressive. You know, most of us, we saw modern art and we go, oh, a kid could do that. Well, a kid could have done this. It, it, it's not impressive at all. But then the lights go out in the, in the ex- exhibition and a bright light is shone on the piece from a very low angle. And then you see it. The shadow produced by these bullet-riddled beer cans creates a perfect silhouette of the New York skyline onto the back wall. Out of the chaos comes order. Out of the garbage comes glory. Friends, this will be a shock to some of us, but the Old Testament is not primarily concerned with making us better people. It's not primarily a morality tale. Oh, go and be like Abraham. Go and be like Judah. Go and be like David. No. The primary aim of the Old Testament is to point us forward to Jesus. Which is why throughout Matthew's genealogy, he's highlighted the garbage of human evil so that all the more we might see the glory of God working out his promises fulfilled in Jesus. What this means for us is that the Old Testament, it is the vast majority of the Bible, isn't it? It doesn't need to remain a locked puzzle for us. Here we have the key. You can go away and look at a passage and it will, one way or another, point you to Jesus. The more we know of God's promises the more we'll understand how it all comes together in the end. So please, give the Old Testament a go. Um, Instead of asking morality-based questions of each passage, how can I copy this person? Instead, begin by asking, how does this passage point me to Jesus? And there's a number of resources at the back we can help you with that. One which is particularly helpful, these explore notes. So we've got them on sale today. You could um, grab uh, some, uh, a copy with, with perhaps your spouse or maybe members of your small groups. You could all look at the same passages together and go through books like Exodus and the Psalms to see how, yes, it's all about Jesus. Because, friends, we need to know, we need to know God's promises. And we need to know them, secondly, if we're going to trust God's promises. Now, I'm aware this is easier said than done. Sometimes when we're going through tough times, it feels like we're just wading through garbage, struggling to see any purpose behind our ill health or that bereavement, struggling to see any reason or rhyme behind our unemployment, struggling to see any explanation for for that horrible situation we're finding ourselves in. Well, Matthew's genealogy reminds us that God is a specialist in taking the garbage of human evil and suffering and then using it to work out his glorious purposes. Let me tell you the story of one woman called Valerie Ghetto. Sorry, Valerie Gatto, who was at Miss Pennsylvania in 2014. Now, I need to preface this. I don't normally follow U.S. beauty pageants. Um, <laughs> But, but her story hit the headlines. In one of the rounds, 
I gather there are a number of rounds in a beauty contest. And the, the contestants are there in their ball gowns, and they get asked a number of questions. And, and Valerie was asked what she hopes to achieve in life. And normally beauty contestants, they say something really inane, don't they? But she said this. I am a product of rape. But I believe God put me here for a reason. To inspire people. To encourage them. To give them hope that everything is possible. You can't let your circumstances define your life. I think Valerie Atto has learnt the lesson of Matthew 1. We cannot let our pasts or even our presents continue to define us. We can't let our disappointments lay claim to our hearts. We are children of the promise, as we often sing. And God works all things, yes, all things, your things, your past, your present. He works it for good. I know it's so hard to believe that in the moment. Which is why we need to have the light of God's word to shine a light on our circumstances so that from that garbage we might see the glory that God is intending for us and for our children. Well, finally, Matthew wants us to see that anyone can be included in God's promise. And I mean anyone. If that wasn't abundantly obvious, what is? Why else would Matthew go out of his way to include in Jesus's personal biography prostitutes, foreigners, outsiders, rape victims, and worse? Through Christ, God's promises to Abraham are being fulfilled. Blessing has come not only to all peoples, but all sorts of people. No matter who you are here today, and no matter what you've done, in Christ we are offered a new genesis, a new beginning, a fresh start. I think that truth really motivates the work of the Tamar Foundation. They're they're based in London out of All Souls Church. And they're named after this woman here in verse 3. They work alongside vulnerable women caught up in the sex industry in London. And they seek to offer the gospel of hope to these women, women who find themselves in awful circumstances, because they believe glorious things can come out of the garbage of human suffering and evil. I read a Guardian editorial a few years ago from a renowned photographer. He was from a Christian background, but along the way I think he lost his faith and became an atheist. But his atheism was challenged when he he was commissioned to do a piece on people living on the streets, drug addicts and and, and the such. And he wrote this. uh, Forgive me for, for, for a lengthy quote. When I first walked into the city, I assumed I would find the same cynicism I had towards faith. If anyone seemed the perfect candidate for atheism, it was the addicts, who daily see how unfair and unjust and evil the world can be. But none of them are. Rather, they are some of the strongest believers I have met, steeped in the Bible. The first addict I met was a lady called Takesha. She was standing near the high wall of a church. We talked for close to an hour before I took her picture. When we finished, I asked how she wanted to be described in the caption. 
Quick as a flash, he said this. As for who I am, I'm a prostitute. I'm a mother of six. But I'm a child of God. Friends, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Well, you could be in Christ's kingdom. Let me pray. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your kingdom, for your glory, and that you would lower yourself to include us in it. That you use the human garbage of suffering and evil to work out your glorious purposes. Lord, in our life, Lord, in my life, do this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.